Maybe we have more knowledge, but do we have wisdom? You know, maybe we have all this great technology, but do we know how to implement it with a proper morality behind it? Welcome to Switching Lenses, a podcast that attempts to break down cultural assumptions and then view those from a more biblical lens. I'm Josh Phillips, joined always by Shane Skirvin, and today we are wrapping up, finally, our series entitled Answering the Atheist. We had done this on the previous episode, however, on this previous episode, we went a little too long. Uh, Shane and I tend to do sometimes, so we end up going close to an hour. So we decided to break it up into two episodes, so it wasn't quite as long. So we're continuing where we left off on the previous episode. And where we left off was we were handling this first question, and we were sort of laying the groundwork for the accusation that there are actually two gods of the Bible in, in a manner of speaking. There's the God of the Old Testament that's angry and vengeful all the time, and then there's the God of the New Testament that seems to be very loving and full of grace and care. So we pointed out how the Bible shows that the God of the Old Testament really is quite merciful and loving, uh, contrary to some of the claims that are brought up against him. So we are picking up right there with a very important question. So here we go. So Shane, I have an important question for you. We've established that God did enact judgment throughout the Old Testament, just like many people claim, but we've also shown at the same time There's many, many, many examples of God's mercy running all throughout the Old Testament. So my question is this, can mercy and judgment coexist together? Yeah, and I, I, you know, also, I not only do I, of course, agree with that for sure, because like you said, it it is, it's the greatest example of it, but I, I, I would, I would venture to say this too, um, judgment points to grace. You can't have grace without judgment. If you can't have unmerited favor and something given to you uh, so graciously if you didn't deserve it. I mean, the very definition of grace is undeserved favor. Well, you don't deserve it because of judgment. So you really can't have one without the other. So far from us saying he's a God of judgment, um, not a God of grace. I mean, you can't have grace without judgment. You cannot have, unless you have something that points to uh, you giving something when you didn't deserve it. I mean, and and that's what judgment does. That's what, is what law does is show you, that you're in no place to demand it, right? Grace has right. to be given to be grace. And it can That's be right. given only if you're undeserved, which is not undeserved, you know, and you're undeserved if you if you don't deserve it because of your behavior. So I, I think, like you said, they actually fit together beautifully. Um, and they point to the cross, the intersection between those two. Absolutely, man. Absolutely. Okay, let's kind of flip the script here a little bit. Let's kind of move on. We've we've put the God of the Old Testament under the microscope and examined him throughout, what the, see what the Bible says, and seen not only his judgment, but also his mercy and grace all throughout the Old Testament. But let's go on the other side of the claim. Let's talk about the God of the New Testament, represented by the person of Jesus Christ. So let's take a look at him. And I kind of want to come from the angle of the perspective a lot of people have of Jesus in the Bible. I think a lot of people think that Jesus just walked around with a smile on his face, uh, walking around like apologetic towards everybody and never really ruffled anybody's feathers over anything like that. But that's not true at all. You know, it's kind of funny. Growing up, I had this uh, youth pastor and he he gave this example one time. (laughs) I'll, I'll never forget this. But he was talking about how a lot of people view Jesus as if you've ever seen those, I think it was makeup, I believe, uh, those makeup containers, the oil of Olay, and it had this lady, like with her ha- head against her hands, the oil of Olay lady. 
He always called him, he called him the oil of the Jesus, and that's what a lot of people think of him. And I don't know why, I just thought that was funny. The Jesus was just like this weak guy and um, just sort of, uh, like, like kind of like I described earlier, just kind of walking around with a smile on his face all the time, a pushover and all this stuff. And like, that's not him at all. That's not him. In fact, I think one of the common things, people think he's just kind of this like weak guy. But I'm like, man, he was, he was a carpenter for crying out loud. He worked, he did manual labor. He's working outside. He probably was quite muscular, I would, I would guess. But um, that just kind of tends to be this perspective. But I don't. But that's not accurate, though. If you actually read the Bible, Jesus. Don't get me wrong. Jesus was full of love, full of grace, going out towards um, the outcasts of society and loving on people, anybody and everybody. But there's another side to him as well, and I think people tend to ignore that. So Shane, what are some examples that we see in the Gospels of Jesus sort of dispelling that idea? Well, I. One thing that's always shocked me that when I started reading the New Testament is because I did have the image, like you're saying, of a kind hey, oil of lay, Jesus. Yeah, yeah, oil of lay. Yeah, that is a great line. Okay, uh, kind, always welcoming, never uh, questioning. But uh, you know, I was actually kind of what shocks me the more I read the New Testament is the harshness of the language he used towards what would be church people, what would be the people that are the religious figures that. Um, uh, we're trying to condemn quote unquote sin and sinners. You know, he had some very harsh language towards uh, them. And that always kind of, uh, when I started first read, started reading the new Testament, that always shocked me the language that he had towards uh, those figures towards Pharisees for towards Sadducees towards those people that looked down on the, on the common people and wanted to put them into quote unquote bondage, you know, wanted to control them. You know, he had no time for that, which I, so I was shocked by, uh, the language he uses in discussing those uh, those people, you know, the yeah. people, those religious figures. You know, what's funny is I, I just thought of this. Uh, it was probably, gosh, probably 15 years ago, I guess. I was I was reading. I think it was the Gospel of Matthew, if I'm not mistaken. And I'm reading through it, and so I'm kind of going into this reading, and I've had I sort of have this sort of I guess Christian cultural cultural type of uh, mindset going into this, I guess what I've learned in church or whatever, or just my own thoughts that I came up with of like Jesus, kind of this oil boy Jesus, kind of like this lady. He's always going to be talk to everybody in this real sweet, kind way. And I'm reading through this and I'm going like at story after story after story through this. And I'm like, man, Jesus's tone's a little different than like kind of what I remember, or at least what I'm having in my head a little bit. He's, he's really kind of going after some people. Just, just in kind of the words that he's using, I mean, I, I, if somebody said that to me, I might be a little offended a little bit, or I, I wouldn't be take. Uh, maybe another, a better way of saying that is, I, I might be thinking that like, like, wow, I don't, they're not very happy with me right now, and I just, Jesus just had all. There's just several times where he just he says something, and it's just like, whoa, where did where did that come from? And it just kind of goes against this whole mindset that we have. That we, we try this mindset and this idea that we try to put on the Bible and we try to put on Jesus until we have a closer reading of it. And he rubbed people the wrong way. There was people that begged him to leave. They, he yeah. could show up in an area and they would say, oh, please leave because you're going to upset everything. You're going to flip everything over. You're going to disrupt things. You know, he was a he was absolutely a disruptor. Um, his own family wanted him committed to like an insane asylum, right? His family showed up and, and said, you're out of your mind. We're going to take you out of this scene. So yeah. he had tension and conflict within his own family, within the uh, religious figures. Obviously, the Romans had a hand in killing him. You know, So he actually crossed paths 
in a negative way with almost every authority and power figure in his society. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, that's, that's pretty nuts, yeah. Oh, they tried to kill him, right? I mean, mm-hmm. let's, let's forget the fact that multiple times the Jews tried to stone him or were, were looking for ways to, to uh, before yeah. they ultimately did. It wasn't like just one time they got yeah. mad and tried to kill him. There was multiple attempts on his life. Always trying to flee cities and things like that. And that shows you the sharpness. Like, it, it, look at a guy like Christopher Hitchens. He said you can't really uh, – uh, this is Hitchens' point. He actually – I remember hearing him say this. He said Jesus talked about hell more than, any, than I think anyone else, right, in the Bible? And mm-hmm. uh, and he was saying how you can't just keep this idea of this kind-hearted uh, oil valet Jesus mm-hmm. because the way he spoke about hell, right? And that's Hitchens. Right. Hitchens is a, was was a sharp guy, and he paid attention to what Jesus said. A lot of people that have that image of Jesus ha- don't really. It's sometimes it's an assumption picked up from pop culture, and from sermons without a thorough reading of Scripture to show you a more complete picture, a more holistic vision of who Jesus was. Right. I mean, this is the guy that was was uh, cross sword, so to speak, uh, verbally with every with every. Uh, authority or power figure in his nation right right in his path. so i mean this isn't this isn't a guy that was trying to just get along and to go along to get along that wanted a smooth easy life that like you said always spoke kind words i mean he i think uh josh you raised the point he was kind of a terrible salesman he wasn't doing sales he was making proclamation and discussing things uh in a very uh stark way sometimes mm-hmm. right he wasn't yeah. uh sugarcoating things in culture, there's the word soft, and that is that is a descriptor that would not apply to Jesus one bit. There was always a seriousness behind what he said, a ferocity by, behind what he proclaimed, um, and he, he, he meant business all the time. He was loving and uncompromising at the same time, like we said. Now, in some cases, some people might say, well, there are times Jesus even might have seemed angry a little bit. Uh, there's the obvious time in the temple when he was flipping over the tables. Uh, that was that was an obvious uh, example of that right there. But so Shane, that kind of leads me to my next question that I want to have for you. Um, some people kind of have a problem with this uh, idea of Jesus being angry at times, and maybe they try to work it out and sort of come out, kind of flush it out in their own terms, and some maybe you kind of rewrite what the Bible says in some terms. But my question to you, Shane, is similar to kind of how we asked earlier about can grace and judgment coexist. My question is, can anger and love? coexist. Yeah. In fact, I think that that is a great point. And I, I do want to mention that you can't have, you know, uh, anger is another side of love. There is no way you can be in a loving relationship and then see the person in that relationship with you, see them threatened with with dire consequences and you be passive or indifferent about it. I mean, everyone who's ever been in a relationship where they love someone um, knows this truth. So this idea that you can't, because a lot of times people say, oh, I believe in a God of love, but not a God of anger. But everyone knows if you do, if you examine those beliefs, if you really look at them, um, that's actually a crazy belief that it's not even logical. You can't have love without anger. You can't, uh, passive indifference is a form of hate. And, and that's the very uh, opposite of love. So I, I think that, that that needs to be put to rest that idea that you can have a God of love without having a, a God that gets angry. That, that is no way uh, all of us know in, in, from, from life and from every aspect, historical, scriptural, from every aspect you can look at, you can't have, um, you can't love something without getting angry if it's threatened or harmed. And so uh, that 
I, I think that that criticism should uh, should always be put down. I think it's too simplistic. I think all of us know there's complexity to being in a relationship and loving something that will, at some way, in some form, could lead to a place of anger. And anger is not a bad. The the Bible, like you said, whether you're talking about Jesus in the New Testament or if you're talking about uh, Father God in the Old Testament, uh, love and anger are always displayed, and often, sometimes side by side. Yeah. And it's sometimes at, at different angles, but you'll never, that's a very simplistic assumption that, that really should, uh, sh- uh, you know, uh, uh, any kind of examination will put that to rest, you know, and, and it's, sh- it shouldn't be, we all know that that's not true. That's, that's too simple to be uh, real life. Well, that, that was a great response there, Shane. Uh, that's, that was good. That was good. I think it's also a great way to finish off and tie up this, uh, this whole question we're dealing with. So just to kind of summarize, you know, where we, we showed that the God of the Old Testament is actually quite merciful and loving in multiple passages throughout the Old Testament. And to sort of buck the idea that Jesus is nothing but kind and never wants to hurt anybody's feelings. And it's just sort of the, like we said, the oil of Olay Jesus. But that's not true. There was a seriousness that Jesus had with the gospel, with the kingdom, and he was uncompromising in that message. And that wraps up this question for us. Let's go on, Shane. Let's go on to the next question here. And our next question deals with the Bible. And it deals with sort of a modern perspective of the Bible that's held by uh, by many, many atheists for sure. Maybe some people that you could find possibly in the church, or that claim to be in the church at least, that the Bible is an outdated book that is no longer relevant today. So we want to address that there. I know there's a popular atheist opinion out there that the Bible and other ancient texts of other religions did serve an evolutionary purpose back for those ancient people, but that is no longer applicable today. That we have through, um, I guess, um, discoveries and, and intelligence and, and information uh, that we have now that we can explain some of these things that people couldn't couldn't explain and didn't understand and used religion or a god or gods to fill in those gaps. Uh, they don't that we don't know we no longer need that. In some cases, they've gone as far as to say that it's damaging, which we, we've addressed this before. So, so Shane, let's, uh, let's 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 talk about this a little bit. Is the Bible irrelevant in today's modern culture? This ancient book is it irrelevant? in this progressive culture. And Shane, I don't know where you want to start with this, but I'm just going to let you just kind of run with it here. I think a good way to look at this is when Jesus came, so there was a revelation in the Old Testament that by all accounts um, was uh, more progressive, a better, um, kinder revelation than the nations around Israel. So Israel received a law and received a concept and a narrative that was far superior. I mean, everyone agrees on this than the nations around it. Something that, and then Jesus comes and raises that standard even higher, right? Yeah. And so then there, that's the idea that there's a cr- critique of the Old Testament. Really, what you're saying is when someone criticizes the Old Testament with the New Testament, what they're saying is that Jesus changed everything. So they're actually complimenting who yeah. Jesus is by saying Jesus changed everything. So we're, we're using the lens of Jesus to view. The Old Testament, which the idea behind that is there's a progression, um, that that the Bible is a story that starts with one man, one man in one place that is going to bless all people everywhere. And so by the very definition, you have an unfolding, you have a progression of something that's going to come from the blessing upon Abraham 
that he's going to be used to bring a blessing to every family on earth. Well, that's where the idea you have of progress. And so this idea that you can have progress or, or what, what is, how did you say that, Josh, that we have progressed beyond the Bible? Well, the term that's used is the term progressive. So, you know, we have the progressive culture or, you know, you have a progressive nation or sometimes it's used just to describe a person, you know, that's a progressive person. And I really just, I, I hate that term because it's so loaded and it's, it, what it's saying is, is if, if I'm, if I'm not progressive then, and I'm not, so I'm not progressing, then what am I doing? At best, I'm neutral. And at worst, I'm regressing. So oftentimes, people who follow the Bible, or, or just to be fair, they'll say anybody of any, of any religion that follows any kind of religious text or follows any sort of religious god or gods, that they are not a part of this progressive culture. They're not progressive. So, like I said, you know, are, you, are we you're regressing, or at best, you're just neutral and you're not progressing like everybody else is? Everybody else is on this whole other plane that you're not on, and it's just it's just insane. And it go, it starts going really f- further than that too, or it really becomes problematic in that a lot of people we you know would refer to us as like fundamentalists and would say that well, actually, these people because they follow this non-progressive uh, text, these this, these ideas that these ideas are actually harmful because the ideas that we hold, these progressive ideas, these are actually beneficial and we're actually getting somewhere and we're, we're discovering things and society is getting better and better. And these old ancient ideas are actually keeping us from achieving these things and are actually harmful and damaging to society. Well, you don't have the idea of, but my, my point is with that is you don't even, the idea of progress of humanity, that's an idea ripped from the pages of scripture. <laughs> if there is no, if there's no morality, you only have morality with God. If there's no morality, you can't become from something lesser to something greater. So the idea of progress itself is a, is, is a theological concept that was swiped from the Bible and then used to say the Bible's outdated. The idea that something's outdated means that there's something newer and better. So you don't even have, if you let go of God of the Bible, you let go of the idea that there's good and better. Well, it's really problematic, isn't it, that when you use a term like progressive, it's a relative word. And in order to use that, you have to have a point of reference. You know, um, Abdu Murray, uh, a speaker and writer for uh, Ravi Zacharias International Ministries, he gives this illustration, which I love, which he's, he's talking about some time, you know, sometimes you're sitting in a car and it's parked. And maybe you're looking looking down here on your phone or whatever, but you're not looking straight ahead or to your side, or you're just kind of looking down within your car. And you notice that that car next to you, it starts to move. Now, in most cases, it's usually just backing out. That's usually what's happening. But if the car, if you if you're not aware that the car is backing out, you might think that your car is moving forward. And so we kind of just get this freak out moment, right? Where we slap on our brakes and whatever. But the way that we know whether or not we're moving is we look outside the window. We look for a fixed object. Uh, a point of reference to determine whether or not we're the ones moving or something else is moving. And so that is something, this progressive culture, it's kind of interesting that, that, that loaded term they have of using progressive, you know, it's a relative term and you're, you're absolutely right without the Bible. I mean, how can you even say whether or not you're progress, progressing, regressing or, or going anywhere at all? You can say you're changing, but there's no way of determining whether or not that's a positive or negative change. But let me go ahead and throw something that, at you that you might get. What, 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 what if you got the response that, hey, um, these are just evolutionary changes. This is just us evolving over time. You know, what would you say to that? Then, the, then you can flip that back on them and say, so what is the ideal state? What is the ideal human? What are we aiming at? If we're progressing from one thing to another, there has to be an ideal that we're getting closer to, right? 
Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. You think there's some sort of goal goal of humanity that we're trying to achieve? I think this sort of ideal of radical equality of all. Uh, in fact, I've had it. Uh, yeah, and you can't have that definition if there is uh, if evolution is true. Then why should we be on board with radical equality? It's the stronger man's right, right? The survival of the fittest. Yeah, you got to leave all that behind. the The strong, the strong should take and become the best, right? Yeah. The weaker man is wrong. So I, I, I think it all gets really muddy because you lose the ideal of this, this, this radical equality. You get that idea only from one place, and that's the Bible. You know what's funny about that is there, you know, there's this idea of of evolving to this certain type of state, or at least getting into you know constantly evolving to something greater. I think it's funny as Christians, you know, we too are also awaiting a better self, uh, not, a, not a better self, a completed self. Uh, as Christians, you know, we are waiting the return of Jesus to redeem all of creation, including us, redeem us and um, redeem our sinful state, redeem our bodies. And uh, so we can spend eternity with him. So it's kind of, it's kind of interesting how we have sort of a, a similar look in a way. It's the same thing, right? Just different. Yeah. Parts. Yeah. It's kind of funny. But, but everyone, uh, everyone's still looking for the ideal man. Well, actually, I want to get kind of back to something you were saying uh, earlier. Um, you know, we were talking about the the, the progressive culture and uh, and some of the claims of it, and what, as it relates to the Bible being outdated and whatnot. Uh, I have a, so I have a question for you, Shane. And my question is: Does truth, does what is true, change over time? If something were true two, three hundred, four hundred, five hundred thousand years ago, would it be untrue today? It's, it's, and of course, this would be specifically to morality, is, but, but but really, I mean, anything that's true, all truthfulness. Well, by the by, if if it's useful, uh, it's because people believed it was true. Uh, the noble lie concept, because that 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 idea that's put forward, it's called the, uh, that the masses need the noble lie to be kept in line. But if it, it it's only true if you believe it, I mean, it only works if you believe it. Yeah. And so that idea that you could have a um, you can have a noble lie to keep pushing humanity forward when the elites know that it's not true, but the, the masses need something to, they need to be afraid of something to be kept um, decently and orderly. Have you heard that concept, the noble lie? Yeah. It's that idea that, yeah, that that's what is put forward to keep, it's the best for humanity, but we know it's not true. You know, and I, I would say that no one, you know, this idea that we can parade something around and no one actually believes it, uh, I mean, I, I, I think it's crazy. It's, it's the exact reason why Jordan Peterson says, I act as if God is true. Because, <laughs> yeah. you know, none of that works if you don't. Well, here's, here's kind of what gets to me, is there's these ideas that we have, we've learned so much about our universe, um, the properties of our universe. We've, we've learned, we've, with, with technology, we've become so advanced and we've created such a society with this. But what in the world does that have to do with humanity? What does that have to do with morality? You know, sure, maybe we have more knowledge, but do we have wisdom? You know, maybe we have all this great technology, but do we know how to implement it with a proper morality behind it? Because that can be extremely problematic. Because morality, I think you come down to two basic, you come down to a worldview issue. Is Does morality, is it solved through uh, knowledge? Is ignorance the the scrounge you know scrounge of morality do people only make bad choices because they don't know any better or is it because desire is corrupted so you really get down to what you actually believe about the state of human nature 
Can humans be changed by their environment or can they be in a great environment and make terrible choices? You know, you, you really get you, at some point you have to make a decision what you believe about humanity. Either the Bible uh, truth claims about human nature are true or they're not. But now, now you can say like the atheist that it's useful. I mean, I've heard uh, I've heard Richard Dawkins say Christianity's like you said. You kind of I think was kind of your question. It's been very useful for Europe, right? That's that's his uh, uh, that's an idea he advocates. Is Christianity was needful to get uh, because uh, secularism, secular humanism, has only arisen in one place. That's out of a Judeo Christian worldview, right? right? Right. So he said it was a vehicle, an evolutionary vehicle to get us to the place of secular humanism. But the really the question he's asking, can secular humanism live on its own or is it a parasite? Is secular humanism, <laughs> are they borrowing from yeah. a Christian worldview and then they're going to run out of capital and then yeah. the whole thing crashes down? What arises, right? Well, we know what Nietzsche thought. Yeah. The Superman, right? The, mm -hmm. the Uber man. Well, yeah, you really get into a big problem, don't you? Whenever you start using the word good, whenever you start saying that something is good or bad and it kind of begs the question, you know, says who? Who says it's good? It really opens a big philosophical problem. But uh, I think one of the big problems today is, uh, too, is that we think so often because we're so technologically advanced and we know so much more than past generations of humanity that we think that sometimes somehow we can sort of intellectually accomplish morality, that if we are smart enough and we know enough about maybe the human body or how the brain works, that we can somehow... Uh, we can we can make ourselves more moral or what or whatnot, but uh, I, I think it's gr a great quote to that was uh, by D.L. Moody, and he says, "If a man is stealing nuts and bolts from a railway tr railway track, excuse me, and in order to change him, you send him to college, at the end of his education, he will steal the whole railway track." And I think that's so true that uh, to this this whole nonsense idea that education or for more education will actually get us to some sort of higher morality doesn't solve morality is not solved through technology or education germany was the most educated nation on the face of the earth but they fell for the craziest self-worshipping idea of the uberman right yeah that, that you know so the, this idea that education we all know in the back of our heads you can be brilliant and be evil this idea that stupidity is equality equal with evil is uh itself stupid we all know that you can be brilliant and be uh, uh very selfish and work uh, and be corrupt and work everything to your own end and be willing to, out of passing, passive indifference to other people, to kind of tie into our oh, our earlier discussion, yeah. that you can – that's a form of hate, right? That you can yep. be passively indifferent towards other people and not care if they if you use them as a tool to get to where you want to get, right? Yeah. And so, you know, it doesn't – is that's not that's not displaying love towards your fellow man. Or uh, you know, being in a loving relationship if you're using everyone like a tool because you're because you're smarter than everyone or you're brilliant. Yeah. So in any, I I think this idea of progress without the idea of the ideal, which speaks of uh, morality. I mean, you're back to square one. You can't have the idea of progress. You you've stolen. When people talk about progression of humanity, you're stealing those ideas from the Bible, which which goes back to your question. Um, was the Bible an, a necessary evolutionary step to take humans to the celebrated ideal state of secular humanism? And you know that's that's a that's an open ended question, right? We're living it. We're we're not passive about this. We're living in this experiment. Can it? Right? I mean, that's yeah. a good question. We're we're all answering that question right now. This is exactly where our society is. Can't? Uh, uh, I guess we'll find out. I guess so. <laughs> 
So, yeah, you know, honestly, I, I think we're going to get to the point, you know, this idea that we're going to educate ourselves into, into morality. F- frankly, I think the more we learn, uh, the greater the problem is going to get. I mean, morality hasn't gotten better over time. Uh, was it, I think Nietzsche, didn't he say that with the death of God, the 20th century would be the bloodiest century of all? And if you add up all the deaths from all the wars in the 20th century, it's more than the previous 19 combined. Well, and, and, it, and it goes back to that famous uh, line that Chesterton used. If you teach everyone that they're just an animal, can you get mad at someone by saying you're treating them like an animal? <laughs> I mean, you're kind of cutting off your own, uh, this idea that we can borrow from the Christian worldview and then be constantly saying the Christian worldview isn't true. I mean, you kind of put your kind of, what do they say, sawing off the limb you're standing on? <laughs> I mean, I guess we're going to find out if this works. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I think, I think we can sum up a lot of this Answering the Atheist series that we've been on with a Chesterton quote of my own right here, uh, and that is uh, when he said, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting, it's been found difficult and left untried. And I think this is kind of the spirit behind a lot of the atheistic belief, really, um, because a lot is asked of us from, from God, from Christ. Uh, you know, Jesus said to, t- to take up your cross and follow me. Um, following Jesus takes a lot. It takes a lot. It, t- it takes suffering persecution at times. It takes submitting your will. I think that's the toughest part, I think, is being able to submit your own will and give up your autonomy to, and, 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 be, and be subject to, to, be, to God and what, for his will and what he wants for you. And I, I think that's a big problem behind, uh, behind a lot of this. You know, I have this response to a lot of atheists that, let's say, um, you know, I, I always get the argument that there's not enough evidence for God. You hear this all the time. And it really leads me to say, okay, what if somehow, whatever evidence, whatever this, 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 this bar that has to be hit that would, that would prove to you that God does exist, what if that could manifest somehow? What if God, whether it's God, I, I, don't, I don't know what the criteria is, but if this criteria could be met, all right, and this, and you had sufficient evidence on your own terms. Would you submit? Would you give your life to Christ? Would you submit your will? Would you recognize your own faults and your own lack? And would you submit to Him and accept His forgiveness? And I think that's a big question. I think it's a serious question uh, that needs to be answered because, you know, I, I, I get the feeling that a lot of people would say. Well, I don't know. I'm not. I, maybe that, or maybe just a flat out no, or maybe some. Maybe some genuinely would say yes. I, I don't. I don't want to be so pessimistic there, but I, I think it's a very genuine and very important question. Well, sometimes it comes down to desire more than truth. It's like Pontius Pilate said, uh, "What is truth?" Uh, this was a man of ruthless desire, and so if you're following desire, even when truth doesn't isn't convenient, you'll throw it aside. You know this this. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I I just look at if I was an if I was an intelligent atheist, I would actually want the church to be thriving, because I would know to make a, a society that's not filled with selfishness and thoroughly corrupt. Um, I would want people to be using morality as a convenient means to for a society to function. Right. Right. I mean, yeah. you have to borrow secular human has to borrow capital and fuel from the Christian ideal to keep the whole engine moving forward. And, 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 you know, so it's kind of funny that, uh, that they haven't figured that out or maybe some of them have, and that's why they're being quiet. <laughs> yeah. You want to, you don't want to attack it too much because that's the horse you need to ride to get anywhere. 
that you like know. we're saying progression is a uh is a theological concept that they're they're stealing you yeah. know so it, it has to be i i think that is a uh i think that is a uh, great point josh that it's uh uh you know desire many times